All right, if you would, turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 120 as we get to God's Word this morning. I'm going to treat you guys like my kids sometimes when they fight and they're just too loud in the back seat. It's quiet time. From here until we get home, no more words from you people. Psalm chapter 120, unless it's amen, that's all I want to hear from you. Or preach it, because every once in a while I need some help, right? There we go. Thank you. Where's Ryan Ayers when you need him? There we go. All right. I'm actually being serious. You can give me some help. All right, Psalm chapter 120 is where we're going to begin this morning. We're actually going to be in four passages to begin. As we begin a new series entitled Pilgriming with the Psalms. This is our summer series that we work through all the way now to uh, Labor Day. And we're going to read a, um, a portion of four passages from what is known as the Song of Ascent, or the Psalms of Ascent, which is chapters 120 through 134. I'll be in 120, verses 1 through 7, 121, 1 through 8, 122, 1 through 4, and then finally 134, 1 through 3. So we're going to be jumping around. Try to stay with us. Hear God's word. A song of ascents. This is chapter 120, verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from deceit, a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now chapter 121, verses 1 through 8, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil and he will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Next chapter, 122, verses 1 through 4. Song of Ascents of David this time. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now turn over the end of the Song of Ascents to chapter 134, and we'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 3. Once again, titled, A Song of Ascents, <clears throat> Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, these readings, as I mentioned, as has been mentioned at the beginning of the service, are from a collection of psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. It is believed that those who in Israelite history who gather together the great songs for corporate worship in the sanctuary, the gathering of God's people, collected the various poems and songs that they sang and created this book known as the Book of Psalms. And there is in this section, chapters 120 through 134, they put these psalms together for a particular purpose and for a particular use. 
Now, we're not entirely sure what the historical use of the Psalms were. We think we know, but there are a couple different um, ideas and theories behind this section of Scripture. Some believe that these Psalms are connected to when Israel moved out of captivity in Babylon back to Jerusalem, that these were the songs that they sang. In the Talmud, which is an ancient Jewish document, we prefer the view that there were 15 songs in, that each of these, in each of these psalms of ascent, that each of them were, are the 15 steps that led to the temple in Jerusalem, up into the temple. And the priests would stop at each of these steps and repeat each of these psalms, or take one each for each step. But the most persuasive and most commonly held view <clears throat> is that these songs were sung by Israelites as they moved from their homeland or wherever they lived at whatever point in history, uh, in Israelite history where they were, and moved and journeyed to Jerusalem for the three great festivals within the worship life of Israel. They would have moved from wherever they were in Judea and Samaria, wherever that was, the various places that God had called them to live, and journeyed with their families, with their tribe, up to Jerusalem to worship God and to celebrate together. Therefore, what we see in the Psalm of Sense, no matter in each of these, is they are each of these theories is this is about a journey. These are the songs that would be sung on a pilgrimage, going from one place to another, moving up into the place of God's temple and God's worship. The theme and motif, what we see here in the Psalms of Ascent, is a theme and motif that runs throughout the scriptures and helps us understand the Christian life. Journeying, pilgriming, walking is seen in almost every section of, of, of uh, God's words. From the very beginning, in the Old Testament, we see in the life of Abraham, what does his life look like? He is a man beginning in chapter 12 who God calls and says, leave your land, the land of your fathers and mothers, and sojourn, travel, not to a specific place, but I'll tell you when you got there. Just travel. Just be a pilgrim. He moved from one place to another. We see in Israel, and much of the history of Israel is the travel from slavery out of Egypt through the desert for 40 years to the promised land. Land And what we see here again in the Psalms is the traveling up from your homes to the worship in Jerusalem. And then we see the same motif and the same theme of pilgriming and walking, taking up again in the New Testament. Did you know that Jesus relives the two main pilgrimages of the Old Testament? That Jesus goes down as a child into Egypt. His family flees Herod and the persecution there. And then he comes back up out of Egypt. Then we see right after Jesus' baptism, that after he's been baptized and the Father says, you are my beloved son, the Spirit calls him to go out into the desert for how many days? Forty. That number is not an accident. He goes out for 40 days. He is reliving the Exodus life of the people of Israel. And while Israel did it imperfectly and complained all the way to the promised land, Jesus, who is provided with no food, lives out the Exodus journey perfectly. And then what do we see? The whole, even the, the, if you read in the Gospels, the whole literary tone of the Gospels is there is a movement upwards and moving onwards. Jesus is always on the move in a particular direction. And what is that direction going to? The cross. He heals people and he stops and he cares and prays for people. Left and right, he teaches. But there is always a movement towards Jerusalem. And then throughout the New Testament, the discipleship and the Christian life is seen in terms of walking. Jesus says, follow me. 
like one who leads and the people we are to follow and walk behind him. Paul talks about, uses the term walk throughout his descriptions of the Christian life, in particular in the book of Ephesians. He uses it five times to describe our Christian life. And then, as we'll see in a few minutes, the writer of the book of Hebrews gathers up these similar images in both chapters 10, 11, and 12 to describe the Christian life. When you read the Psalms of Ascent, here's what you're supposed to be thinking about. You're supposed to be thinking about being on a journey, that you are embarking, that you are moving out from your homeland and moving to a better place. And we will use this imagery, this imagery of pilgriming, to entitle both our series this summer and to walk through the Psalms together. We will not actually move through the Psalms of Ascent. We're simply going to use the motif and the theme that is given here this morning to help us describe what the Christian life is as a journey. But as we move through the Psalms throughout the summer, we will do so with this understanding, this theme, that we will walk through the various experiences of the Christian life and show what the Psalms have to say about it. So you and I, this is what what we are on. We are not a people who have reached our home, but we are people on a journey and on a pilgrimage, and so that's where we're going to go this summer. So, if you're someone who is going to take, take off and leave your home and go on a journey in a pilgrimage that's going to last the rest of your life, what do you need? Well, there are many things. We're going to give you three this morning in regards to what you need for the, for the journey, for the journey and pilgrimage of the Christian life, and the first is this. First, if you're going to be on a pilgrimage for the rest of your life, you need to know the points of the journey. In other words, you got to know point A and point B. You got to know where you're at and where you're going. The Psalms of Ascent give us this as well to help us understand where we where we started and where we're ending. And here I'm going to get a little bit Old Testament poetic nerdy on you. The Psalms of Ascent give us a literary clue. And reveals to us what is the beginning and the end of the pilgrimage that they are going on here in Jerusalem, on the way to Jerusalem. In a number of forms of literary devices, there are ways in which writers or editors will use these devices to show the beginning and the end of a section of writing. In Hebrew poetry, the one that we see here is what's called an inclusio. This is a bracket where where what happens is the writer or the editor will begin the section with one theme or one image and then end the section so that you know it's ending and it's moving on to another topic with that same image that they began with. They come back around to the same illustration, the same symbol, the same imagery. And this is what we see in the Psalms of Ascent. We'll begin in Psalm 120 in verse 5. Where does the psalmist position himself physically and geographically? It says he is in, he's beginning his journey in Kedar. As a word, Kedar means literally coming from darkness or to be dark. Where they are beginning their journey and moving out, these people who are singing and going on this pilgrimage, they are starting in a dark place. And what we see in Psalm 120 is it is describing this dark place. In verse 1, it says that it is a place of distress. In verse 2, they are surrounded with, by deceit and untruthfulness. And in verses 6 and 7, this place of Kedar, this place of darkness, is, is marked by hostility with those around them. So we begin with darkness. That is the place where our journey begins. But what we see is we, if you imagine this pilgrim journey, is you are leaving the home of darkness, the land of darkness, and moving out with a grouping of people, singing songs and heading for a better place, for God's city, for God's house, and for God's presence. And where do we see that? 
We see that at the end of the Psalm of Ascents in verses in chapter 134 in the Psalms, where we see the theme of darkness brought up once again. Verse 1, it says this. Here they've arrived in Jerusalem, it says, and not, not that they arrive in glorious light, but what? It says that by night we stand now in the house of the Lord. It's bringing back the imagery and the motif of darkness and night. The weary travelers have now arrived, and they now urge the officiants of God's temple worship to lead them into singing. Do you see the difference if you read in chapter 134, the difference from where they have come, where they have come from and where they now arrive? They have come from the place of hostility and darkness, and instead it's being replaced by a place of blessing, a gentle place, a blanket of God's love. They've gone from the voices of untruth to now they hear the voices in the voice of untruth and hostility. Now they hear the voices of blessing and praise. They've gone from Kedar, the place of darkness, to Zion, the place of God's throne room. And so what we see on the journey in the pilgrimage of the Christian life, this is an imagery of the Christian life in general, that we are a people who are moving from darkness into light. From darkness... And when we arrive at home, even when it's dark, there is light there, the light of God's presence. So what we have to understand, if we're going to move from points A to points B, we have to understand what points A and points B are. And they are indeed the place of darkness, of sorrow and suffering in this world and sin, to the place of God's presence where there is now joy and light in the presence of God. That's the journey. Those are the points that we are on. The implication for us in this just to apply it to where we are, is, is this, is that the earth is not your home. There's a reason why you're on a pilgrim journey. There's a reason why you're leaving Kedar, the place of, jar, of darkness. We are on a journey because this place is not our home. We are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This is the, the theme that Hebrews 11 picks up with in verses 13 through 16. It says this, These all died in faith. When it's been talking about the great men and women of the Old Testament who've walked with great faithfulness before God. It says, These have all died in faith, not having received the things promised yet, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the imagery of the Christian life, once again. The spiritual writers of the Middle Ages, the great Catholic mystics that we have so much to learn from, actually describe, use the, the Latin term to describe the Christian life and Christians this way. They called us viators, which referred to believers on the road to heaven. And that is indeed who we are. Because this is not our home. We are merely wayfarers and sojourners through this world. We are merely passing through and moving on to a better land. The term points to the need to see oneself not as someone who is here on this earth permanently, at least not as this earth is right now, but instead are looking for a better home. Which means you don't put down states here. Jonathan Edwards in his great, a great sermon entitled The Christian Pilgrimage said this, that we ought not to rest in the world and its enjoyments, but instead should desire heaven. We ought above all things to desire a heavenly happiness, to be with God. We ought to possess, enjoy, and use life's opportunities with no other view 
but to readily be done with them whenever we are called to quit them and to change them willingly and cheerfully for heaven. In other words, what he's saying is you ought to see all the blessings of heaven that you have right now, the blessings on this earth, as merely something that you can exchange and give up for the joys of heaven. We hold the things of this earth loosely because it is not our home. We have a true and better and everlasting home. This home is but a moment, but there is a home to come that we will stay in forever and ever. So that's the point of the journey. A dark and broken place, that's this earth. And we are pilgriming and journeying to God's presence, the cheerful light of heaven. So we know the points, but how do we get there? Listen, if you're going to go on a great journey that you've never gone on before, and unless many of you have died and come back to heaven, to come back to earth, none of us have done the Christian life and pilgrimage before, have we? We haven't gotten home. And if you are one of those people, our elders would like to speak to you after the service. So what we need, what God has provided for us, is if we are going to go from points A to point B, if we're going to go on this great destination, is we still need a guide. And God has been so gracious to provide us such a guide. Going from point A to point B is one of the most basic issues of life. And the guide that we will have this summer that get us through to help us understand and work through the process of being a pilgrim in this foreign land is the Psalms. The Psalms give us direction. The Psalms point the way. The Psalms tell us what is the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Psalms point directly at them. The Psalms are songs, but they are propositional statements. C.S. Lewis didn't seem, he created a false dichotomy. He, he, he has this great commentary on the Psalms that is wonderful, and I'll use it throughout this series, but there's one way in which Lewis missed it. He said this, he said that the Psalms are poems, and poems are intended to be sung, not to be doctrinal treatises. Now listen, we agree that they are primarily songs to be sung. They are poems, but we are not going to create a false dichotomy. Songs teach doctrine. That's why it matters the songs that we sing in church. That songs in our worship are formative and transformative for us theologically. In fact, I would say that they form us more than anything else that we do in the church. Songs are what you remember. They come up to you in the moments of sorrow and suffering and the greatest moments of delight. It is this theology that we want to have and the the Psalms point us to the way of truth. But the Psalms don't merely stay there. Psalms are not like Google Maps. They are not merely propositional. What's so wonderful about the Psalms is they are personal. The Psalms are not the voice of Siri on your phone saying, turn right and turn left and merge on I-20. That is not the voice of the Psalms. The Psalms are extremely personal. The Psalms function more like the maps of old, not like our current modern maps. See, how were maps of old constructed? We don't have the technology that we have now, They came to being, how? By many, many travelers going before you and returning back and communicating to you their experiences and what they saw and what they found. At its heart, a map is the distillation of the various experiences of those who have gone before us. That's what the old maps were. Those who have journeyed in the past and have recorded their memories and how the various parts of the road, what they look like and what they experienced there. Let me just explore this a little bit by looking at the time in, Amer- in, in world history where people were trying to create maps left and right, in particular the seas. And they had a particular map called the rudder. The rudder. It was a strange word. It came from the French word rotier. And this word, 
I just threw that out there to make you impressed with me. Isn't that, wasn't that nice? If you're a French scholar, was that good pronunciation? You can tell me afterwards. Anyways, but they would, they would go on those who were on the seas. If you never traveled from Europe to the West Indies or you never traveled to the, new, to the areas of the New World and that there were sailors who'd gone before you, those who survived would keep copious notes. It wouldn't simply be a map that you look at and it would point you different directions, but it was personal. They would talk about their various experiences, the reefs that they hit, the places that were shallow, the places that were of depth, the great harbors that you could go and find rest in. And they they would take copious notes and pass these on almost as diaries to other generations of sea captains who could use them and get safely to their destination and get safely back to where they came from. This is what we find in the Psalms. That we have undertaken a journey that is very difficult and is very dangerous and is very painful. But the Psalms in the life of David and the sons of Korah and others who have written these songs, we find ones who have gone before us. To undertake a journey with a map is to rely on the wisdom of the experiences of the past, of those who have gone before us in the Christian life. It is to benefit from the hard-won knowledge of those who have explored the unknown, who have experienced the sorrows and sufferings that you have not yet experienced, but may one day experience. The loss of a child, the spouse who walks out on you, the loss of a job, the hatred of someone who once loved you. These experiences are all part of the journey. Let me just give you one example to try to draw you in. We see this so wonderfully from our hymn writers, right? They're doing the same things of the psalmists. They're putting wonderful theological, convictional truths and to ways in which we can engage with our hearts and remember and sing along the weary road. You may have heard of the, the hymn writer Horatius Bonard. He wrote many songs. He was one of Scotland's leading 19th century pastors and hymn writers. And he was a man who was familiar with suffering. In the course of over a few short years, he lost all five of his children, not in one fell blow, but one after another. And this left him with a deep impression as such a loss would leave on somebody, so much so that suffering became one of the characters' thoughts of his hymn writing. One of his his most famous phrases was this, is that the family badge of Christians is suffering. The family badge of Christians is suffering. For Bonar, it is simply inevitable that we will be a people who will weep on our way to the throne room. We are our people of exile. We are people who are journeying. The path path that we are on is a path of sorrow. And if you try to escape that, it's going to mean very bad things for your walk. We must expect that Jesus said we will be persecuted. And what we see in the sea in the Psalms, we're going to talk about this more next week. We actually see in the Psalms, in the Psalms, more songs of lament than we see of joy. Talk about that more next week. This is what the Psalms provide us, though. Our hymn writers who have gone before us, who can sing of the travails of the past and the truths that got them through. This is what the Psalms does. It doesn't speak it as ones who are just kind of giving you advice that they've, of things they've never gone through. It is those who connect. They enter into our pain and into our sorrows and into our sufferings and into our experiences and then point the way home. That's the beauty of the Psalms, and that's why they will serve as our guide this summer. So we need to know the points A to B, and then we need a guide to walk us home. That's what the Psalms provide. Third, though, it is a long and weary road. It is not a sprint, it is a pilgrimage. It is a walking, and very often it is uphill. So what do we need? 
We need something that will sustain us. In fact, I think the, the term that we need most, most often is we need a joy for the journey. A joy for the journey. The activity of the saints moving from Kedar to Jerusalem was what? Worship. They worshiped. In a difficult and long journey, they had to teach and preach and sing to themselves the truth so they may have joy that would sustain them and energize them and empower them for the journey. What did the armies of old do as they, as they moved from one section of the world to another? They would sing. They would sing as they marched. The Psalms provide us the psalm book for pilgrimage. And what would they sing on their pilgrim road? What do they sing on the song of the sense? Let me, let me look. I'm going to get nerdy on you one more time this morning. In the Song of Ascents, we see a structure, and it moves like this. There's 15 chapters in the Song of Ascents. It is broken up into five triads. So five triads of psalms. So three, one, two, three, then a new triad. One, two, three, until the last one takes on a new flavor and theme. But the first four triads, they follow this pattern. That the first of the three would talk about our suffering and our sorrow. We see that in chapter 120. It talks about the difficulty and the pain of the road. But what we find in the next two chapters, in chapters 121 and then 122, and so on and so forth through the various triads, is we find the joy for the journey. They begin with and connect with and acknowledge the sorrows and the sufferings of the road. But then they find and illuminate and push in through singing the great joys of the journey. And the first of those psalms in chapter 121 and then others is this, is they would contemplate the very saving character of God. The second psalm in each of the groups of three would focus on the Lord's power to save, to deliver, to build up, and to strengthen. This is what they would focus on. The joy of the journey, brothers and sisters, the joy of the journey is reflect on the very character and the salvific work of God. The psalms, as we will see, are a verbal, verbal portrait, portrait gallery of who God is and all of his characteristics. They provide us a striking picture and beautiful poetic language to help us understand and come to saturate who he is into our hearts. Now, each of these pictures is not complete in and of themselves. But in each of the Psalms, we find various images of who God is that encourage us for the day ahead. As we read the Psalms, what are the images that we're given of who God is? It is talked about as, he is talked about as our creator, as our redeemer, as our protector, as a sustainer, as a provider, as a guide, and so many more. The predominant means of speaking about God is through metaphor and simile in the, in the Psalms. We see that he's talked about as our shepherd, as our king, as our warrior, as our mother, as our father, as our teacher, and as our judge. Beautiful pictures that seek to bring to mind and make alive who God is for us to experience and know him better as we walk the weary road of our pilgrimage. There is such joy and refreshment in what? Worship. There's a reason why we love to worship, why we love to sing. Or at least you ought to love to worship and to sing. It lifts your heart up into contemplation, not of the anxieties and the sufferings around you, but of the great delights of all that God is. That's what we do in worship. And we see that this understanding of worship and contemplating the character of God is brought to its fullest flavor when we see Jesus. You see, who are the Psalms about? 
On the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is meeting with a couple of disciples, and they're very confused about this whole death of Jesus thing and about the possibility about Jesus rising from the dead. And it says that Jesus then goes to the prophets and the Psalms, and he shows them how they are about him. The Psalms point to Jesus. What does it say in Hebrews? I love it. It's perfect imagery for the pilgrim life. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. The psalm makes the point that it is God and God alone who can refresh and renew us along the journey, who can fulfill us even in the midst of physical exertions and the difficulties, that when we need spiritual food and drink, who are we to drink up on? Jesus. See, that even the pains and the sorrows of the journey, they help us understand in a deeper or more full way who God is for us. Jesus talks about this in his own ministry. He says, I am the bread of life. He's the one in whom we are to feed upon. In a celebrated sermon in 1855, Charles Spurgeon gave us a great and riveting call to this kind of activity, to contemplate Christ Jesus as the means of getting through our pilgrimage. And he says this, there is, and contemplating Christ, on meditating for him, here's his description, here's what happens when you meditate on Christ, that there is a balm for every wound, In musing on the Father, there is a quiet for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul. Brothers and sisters, this is what we do each and every week when we come to worship. Listen, yes, I am to call you to wonderful activities, that you should be good Christians, that you should obey, that you should pursue holiness, but I must do that secondary to giving you the thing that will empower you to do so with his God and God himself. You see God, you delight in who he is. So we see the first psalm in the triads is he talks about our suffering and our sorrows. The second, we find the joy is first found in contemplating the character of God and his saving work. But in the third, the third song of the triad, it focuses on another thing. It focuses on what life will be like when we have made it home. When we have made it home. So if you were to take the first three psalms of the songs of ascent, 120 would be the sorrows, 121 would focus on the character of God, and 122 would focus on what heaven's going to be like when we get there. You know, in the story of Israel wandering in the desert, what is she constantly being urged to do? She's constantly being urged to look in two directions. To remember and to anticipate. Brothers and sisters, this is a spiritual discipline. A spiritual discipline that, are, that from old people have understood this. The ancient ways of Christianity have understood that you look in two directions. That you look backwards and you look forwards. Israel was called to look backwards to the past. To what? To God's redemptive saving work who brought them out of of slavery, across the sea, and into redemption. That's what she would look back to. But she would also look forward. The Christian is invited to remember the salvation work of the past and to anticipate and look forward to the future hope that is ours in heaven. One writer put it this way, the past and the future break into our present life of faith. For today, enfolding it as an alpine valley is embraced by the mountains on either side. The great mountains of your life 
that you're to look to is one, you're to look on one side and remember God's redemptive work, and on the other side, turn your head and look at his future work, the future grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. In the past, remember the acts of redemption that brought you into his family, and the future, we look to that day when we will be consummated in our relationship with Jesus. We look at how we are brought from sin and death and despair, and then we look forward to the day in which we will fully experience his newness, his love, and his joy for us. In the future, we anticipate what? The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Coming down to earth to reshape and to remake this world so that it is not the world that we know it as we do now. The present state is short and transitory, but the future state is everlasting and eternal. One person said this, What a glad day for us as we're pilgrims on the great ascent. Our traveling days will be over, and our mobile home will be exchanged for a permanent house. But not one made with hands, but eternal one. In the dramatic words of Revelation 22, we will enter into the gates of the city. So brothers and sisters, whether it's backwards or forwards, whichever remembering and anticipating, the push and the pull of the gospel, whichever way you want to remember it, remember each day to look backwards to the salvific works of Jesus and to look forward to the promise to come in heaven. And let me tell you, when we enter heaven, we will not enter through the back door. Alistair McGrath, who's a great um, English theologian, writes this about some friends of his who had an opportunity to go to meet the Queen of England. They had gotten tickets to uh, qualify to go to one of the Queen's great garden parties. And as they parked their car, a well-meaning police officer came up to them and seeing that they were of some age, pointed them to a side door to which they could directly enter the garden where the party was at. And with some exasperation, they looked up at him and said, listen, we are coming to meet the queen, and we will not enter through any back door. We will enter through the great gates. McGrath said this, and contemplating on that scene, said, what a day it will be when the gates swing wide and the trumpets sound and all the bells of the heavenly city will ring out in delirious celebration from earth's wide bounds, from oceans furthest coasts, Through gates of pearl stream in the countless hosts, singing to whom? To Father, Son, and to Holy Ghost. That is what you have to look forward to. Brothers and sisters, the song that we sing is one that remembers our redemption and looks forward to, as we sang it this morning, the promised land. These are the great thoughts of the pilgrim who's looking forward with anticipation. Would you take part in that and would you journey on? Let's pray.